Hey you and welcome, my name is Mike and in this whole episode we are going back to the bread and butter, spread it on, of true crime with another one of those nightmare fuel serial killers. We got David Carpenter. There, you know, there's a great line in the movie The Lost Boys when the grandfather says if all the corpses buried around here were to stand up at once, we would have one hell of a population problem. That line could have just as easily been said about San Francisco. Like if there was ever a serial killer hall of fame, San Francisco would need its own darn wing. Today I'm talking about a guy who would very much be in there. And while he doesn't have the numbers of fellow San Franciscans, Joseph James D'Angelo, or like the notoriety of the Zodiac, David Carpenter stands apart in just how obsessed with killing he was. He be. He be. He be maybe. Some people love baseball, right? Others gardening. <laughs> but not this guy. Wait till you get a load of him. Nothing could or would deter him from satisfying his sick ass appetite for control. So, let's dive in and give it a go. From the day he was born in San Francisco on May 6th, 1930, David Joseph Carpenter was almost destined to be a serial killer. He raised by an abusive alcoholic father named Elwood. And I mean, come on, guys, like with a name like that, I'd turn to the drink too. And a domineering mother, Frances. Always with the mothers, these guys. Little David, um, he not only consistently wet the bed, serial killer ding there already, but he also developed a severe stutter from age seven. Like to call him a nervous or shy child would be a ridiculous understatement. Already, you know, tortured at home by his parents, David then would also become, you know, the victim of bullies at school due to his mother's insistence that he take extracurricular classes such as ballet and violin lessons. Because, because, hey, come on, we all know one thing, if a little boy does ballet and violin lessons, other little boys will think he is pretty darn cool. And before his teens still wetting the bed, David began to spend his free time indulging in a new hobby. He liked to hurt and even kill small animals he found around the neighborhood. So, right, those two behaviors, bedwetting, past age of five, and cruelty to animals, they make two of the three elements of the McDonald triad. And so that gives Carpenter a strong two out of three, right? Pretty good, you know, golf clap. That deserves a golf clap. Golf clap? Golf clan. The McDonald triad is one test you really don't want to score highly on. With two out of three, that, that, that be, that's considered to be indicative of future violent, even homicidal behavior, and or sexually predatory behavior. Now, of course, it shouldn't by any means be taken as like 100%, right? You know, there's lots of people who have these kind of traits and go on to be very, very normal. In this case, our boy David Carpenter, he would go on to heavily indulge in both violent and sexually predatory behaviors throughout his gosh darn life. Excuse my French. And it would be a violent sexual outburst that would come first for young David. To make matters worse, it was one of his own family members. 
1944, at only 14 years old, David would be institutionalized for the first time at California's Napa State Hospital for what's only been confirmed as undisclosed sexual offenses. That like vague tree word description somehow makes, you know, the thought of whatever David did so much worse. And it wasn't too long before David would be incarcerated for a second time. At the age of 17, he would be remanded to the care of the California Youth Authority after he was caught molesting two of his young cousins. When I say young, I mean one was three years old, one was eight years old, and he was released after serving a single year. Whether David had been, you know, temporarily scared straight, or if he simply learned to better hide his sexual deviancy during, you know, his time inside. After he left, though, you know, it, by all accounts, on the surface at least, it seems like he was a normal, he had a normal clean-cut life. But despite remaining off the police's radar for, for a while after he left the youth authority, it, violence was never far from his mind. It would only be a matter of time before he snapped and someone would bear the brunt of his demons. The highlights during the relative period of calm came in 1955. David, 25 years of age. That's when he met and he married 19-year-old Ellen Heetle. And over the next few years, the couple would go on to have three children together. Michael David, born in 56. Gabrielle Louise, born in 58. And finally, Cersei Anne in 1960. In later interviews, though, wife Ellen told the police that their marriage was nowhere near normal at all and she believed her husband to be a sex addict, telling police that he would often demand sex up to three or four times a night. Where do you find the time for that? In yet another telltale sign of David's twisted pathology, he was often unable to dedicate himself to a career or even hold down a job for a sustained period. That seems to be, like, it's not part of the McDonald triad, but it seems to be a serial killer staple, that serial killers just can't hold down jobs. They're Always going from one thing to another to another. I've uh, seen that in John Edward Robinson, Gary Heidendick, all of them. Like over the years, he would try his hands at several occupations. Um, basically, a guy, you know, a ship's purser, who was the guy who handled the cash and funds for a ship's. Uh, he would be a salesman. He worked for a time at a printing company. All kind of different enough. And though his overall, like, uh, criminal career began pretty, pretty early, right, as a youth uh, molesting people, David Carpenter didn't actually kill until aged 33, and hence he's often considered to be a late bloomer by, by most serial killer standards. And so, the first major escalation in violence came for Carpenter in July 1960, shortly after the birth of his third child. And just whatever the spark was for that aggression, I'm not quite sure. But his victim was 32-year-old Secretary Lois de Andrade, who he had known for, for more than nine months. And so what happened was he lured her to his car, saying, Hey, do you want to meet my wife and my, my daughter who was just born? Lois said what happened when she got into the car was that he drove around aimlessly for a time. And, you know, he could tell... She was getting worried, and so he said he got lost during the drive. And then um, Lois said, uh, I don't think so, pal. I kind of want to go home. She was getting weirded out, right? She was like, uh, I thought I'm going to meet your wife and your baby, and you seem to be driving around with no indication of taking me anywhere. 
He eventually pulled over into an isolated spot and began to attack Lois with a hammer and a knife. Now she fought back frantically, repeatedly hitting the car's horn, like trying to get the attention of people nearby. However, Carpenter was relentless and he slashed at her with his knife. However, fortunately for Lois, the isolated spot Carpenter, you know, chose to, to attack her was not far from the patrol route of Private First Class Jewel W. Hicks, a military police officer who's doing the rounds of old coastal artillery sites at the time. This Private First Class, he heard her screams and he ran over, you know, towards the danger. And in a clearing in the trees, he saw Lois on the ground covered in blood and Carpenter swinging a hammer at her again and again. Hicks, he drew his service 45 and he demanded Carpenter stop. Carpenter responded by attempting to kill the private with the hammer. He also fired a small projectile the size of a fountain pen at the private. It was later discovered that he threw a tiny tear gas canister. Why David Carpenter would have a tiny tear gas canister, God only knows. The uh, private then did kind of what you can imagine anybody would have done. He opened fire on David Carpenter three times, hitting him twice, once in the abdomen, once in the thigh. David Carpenter's response to being shot at three times was to run over to the private's patrol car and scream, You've got me! Then collapsing into the passenger seat. Private Hicks, he called the shooting on his radio. He tended to to the victim, uh, Lois, and then back up arrived. David and Lois were taken to the hospital, David in handcuffs, and Lois in critical condition. Both the victim and the attacker were left requiring life-saving surgeries, and Lois would go on to make a full recovery despite a skull fracture and serious cuts to her hands. The head injuries could have killed her if, if you know, she hadn't been discovered. She would have been the first fatality of what would later be known as the Trailside Killer. David Carpenter was transferred to the San Francisco County Jail before being indicted by a federal grand jury for one count of attempted murder for the attack on Lois and two further assault charges for the attempted attack on Private Hicks. Perhaps knowing like a trial would be completely pointless, his guilt was kind of uh, nailed. Carpenter pleaded guilty and the attempted murder charge was dropped. In March 1961, Carpenter was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison, and he was also due to undergo psychological analysis. And this analysis would conclude that David Carpenter had the IQ of 125 and likely had a sociopathic personality disorder. Now, Carpenter's prison time, largely uneventful, and he was released on parole after being incarcerated for almost eight years on April 7th, 1969. For obvious reasons, uh, his wife, Ellen, she would become his ex-wife shortly after. And it wasn't long after his release that David would be dragged back into jail after making himself the target of a huge manhunt. On January 27, 1970, David Carpenter, now aged 39, rammed a 19-year-old girl's car, forcing her to pull over, and then he dragged her to a secluded spot and raped her. There was a big-ass manhunt to find this son of a bitch, and he was captured on February 3rd, so about a week later in Modesto, and he was taken to the county jail where he was charged with another sexual assault on a 35-year-old. That had happened the same day as his attack on the 19-year-old. He had broken into this woman's home, 
and was lying in wait with her with a shotgun. The same day as his arrest, after he attacked these two women, on the 3rd of February, he also kidnapped another woman and her baby and raped the woman. This woman would later tell the police investigator that he was very kind to the child, so... Um, as you can see here, after he got out of jail for trying to murder Lois and being almost very, very successful with it, he then, as soon as he's out, he's, he's attacking three women in the space of a week. This is batshit insane stuff. So after initially being hit with a five-year minimum term, David, hmm, he was thinking of himself, and so he plotted with five other inmates to escape jail. It actually worked. They managed to flee the San Andreas jail using a smuggled hacksaw blade and climbing out through a skylight. The alarm was raised after a deputy discovered the men missing, but the men, they were all wrangled back into custody before too long. Like, they were arrested the very same day they escaped. And as a reward for this little plot, they were, well, you got another charge stacked on there, boyos. Carpenter, he was slapped with assault, rape, auto theft, kidnapping, and robbery charges. So, to put that quite simply, fucked. Like, this is really at the point where, you know, he's being diagnosed with all this shit. He's tried to murder, well, two people. Um, he's attacking all these other women. Like, this is, he's not gonna get better at this point, come on now. What he did get was an 11-year term. Once again, his time in prison, uneventful, and he was paroled and released in 1977, after serving a little over seven years for all that. And he was never listed as a sex offender, despite obviously being a massive predator and even being convicted of actual rape. Like, oh my, like this is insane. So it was after his second release that David Carpenter's rampage, though, really started. Yep, yeah, yeah, you heard me right, folks. We haven't even like started the crazy shit when he becomes the trailside killer. And with someone as volatile and, let's be honest, batshit crazy as David Carpenter, I mean, I guess it kind of is impossible to say for sure when his killing started and when it ended. Like all serial killers, you can't believe kind of a word they say, how many bodies they've got hidden around the country. But over the next three or so years, 10 murders would be linked to David Carpenter. Some certain, you know, DNA witnesses, actual forensic evidence, other suspicions and similarities. So it began with the murder of 44-year-old Ida Kane on August 20th, 1979, almost three months to the day since he was paroled and let out of prison for those sexual assaults. She had gone out for a walk along a trail on Mount Tamalpais, a, you know, a place that would later become a regular hunting ground for David Carpenter. And so, you know, she was out there that Sunday morning walk. She did it every week and it usually took about three hours. That's like a full on hike. But when, you know, she didn't return, and she missed Sunday service, which would have been, you know, a big deal for her. Her husband, he began panicking. He called the police and he reported her missing. A large force of more than 50 deputies, rangers, volunteers, went out to search the, the trail area for any sign of Edith. They found her body later that same day. She'd only been 45 minutes from her car when she had been attacked. She'd been shot in the head with a 45 caliber pistol. Police were initially confused as to the motive of the killer. All he had taken was $10 and three credit cards from her purse. But he hadn't taken any of her jewelry, including an expensive wedding ring, 
and she hadn't been sexually assaulted. Ida Kane's murder, it wasn't initially connected to the, the trailside murders, which we will get into, though she was probably the very first one. The later murders would be committed with a different caliber at 38 rather than 45, and it was only after, you know, he was arrested and investigated for several of the other murders in the chain that police discovered a friend of Carpenter's had a 45 caliber gun go missing, and so they were able to match Ida Kane to David Carpenter later on. The evidence, though, it's kind of circumstantial. You know, Kane's murder could have likely been a practice run for David Carpenter but he has never actually been convicted or even charged with Ida Kane's killing. But the murder of 23-year-old Mary Frances Bennett could definitely have been ripped straight from a horror movie. Mary, she had been out for a jog when she was grabbed and attacked by David Carpenter. Detectives talked to golfers who had been nearby when the attack happened, and they told the detectives that they heard Mary's anguished screams but had not acted as they saw a nearby police car and presumed that the, the police car was, you know, was there for those screams, right? That kind of makes sense. You hear screams, you see a police car. Oh, that's why. Okay. But that car was not there for Mary. And her body was later found in a shallow grave that same day after a group of hikers followed a trail of blood. Mary had been wearing a t-shirt with the slogan Hell's Accountant across it which was something that the newspaper would have, would have made a big deal of. You know, it's like woman with Hell's Accountant's t-shirt brutally murdered. Detectives believed that someone must have seen the killer at the time as Mary, she had been savagely mutilated, but no one did. Another suspected victim of David Carpenter was 23-year-old Barbara Schwartz. Barbara, she'd only moved to Mill Valley in Marin County in 1978, less than two years before she would run into Carpenter as she took her pet Labrador for a walk. This, as you can probably guess, was Mount Tamalpais, and it was a case of wrong place, wrong time. Barbara Schwartz was stabbed more than 10 times, and it's likely the attack would have been much more worse than what happened had witnesses not stumbled across Carpenter as he was in the middle of attacking Schwartz. He was chased from the scene by witnesses, but he managed to get away and Barbara succumbed to her injuries. The hikers he was chased by, they managed to give the police a description of Carpenter. And though it certainly lines up with his MO and the description could easily match him, Carpenter has never faced any charges in Barbara Schwartz's case. Similar to Barbara Schwartz and Mary Bennett, 26-year-old Ann Alderson went out for a hike on October 13, 1980, and never returned. Her father reported her missing immediately, and there was there was a huge search party, you know, set out to find the woman, but there was no sign of her when her car was found by state rangers. Then, two days later, on the 15th of October, Anne's body was found by a ranger a quarter mile east of Mount Theater, again on Mount Tamalpius. Like Ellie Hansen, she'd been shot in the head at close range, and the post-mortem examination showed she'd been sexually assaulted close to the time of her death. 18-year-old Cynthia Moreland and 19-year-old Richard Stowers had been hiking along Point Reyes National Seashore, and when they didn't return home that evening, Cynthia's family reported them missing. Now, police initially refused to get involved as they assumed the young couple was off somewhere together, they were likely safe, and they would, they would return home when they were good and ready. Earlier that same day, however, police had actually responded to a call from the public about gunshots heard in that same area that the couple had been hiking in between 1 
and 2 p.m. And despite hearing gunshots in the area, and now you've got two missing people in the area, no one decided to put two and two together. And if it couldn't get any worse, Richard Stowers was actually a serving member of the Coast Guard at the time he went missing. And, you know, as he hadn't reported for duty, rather than saying he's a missing person, he was listed as a deserter. Their bodies would be found a month later by police search dogs. On November 29th, 1980, you know, not far from, from where they'd gone missing. And they were found alongside the bodies of two more previously missing women, Diane O'Connell and Shauna May. O'Connell had been there with two other members of the Sierra Club, a national grassroots organization advocating for environmental issues. And they were out hiking, you know, in that area, Point Reyes, just as Moreland and Stowers had been. The tree had become separated, however. Diane O'Connell had been grabbed and dragged away. And it wasn't until, you know, the two caught up that they realized that Diane O'Connell was even missing. And it was around 3 o'clock that afternoon that they heard several gunshots nearby. Around 10 minutes later, the group heard another round of gunshots. The second volley is thought to have been aimed at 25-year-old Shauna May, who was out hiking in that area area. Whether, you know, Shauna May stumbled across the scene as Carpenter was mutilating Diane O'Connell, or he deliberately had been out there looking for another victim, who knows. But he killed two people who were completely separate from each other within minutes of each other. By the way, these are some of the victims David Carpenter will be charged with. On the last weekend of March 1981, two students from the University of California Stephen Hurdle and Ellie Hansen went camping in Henry Cowell Redwood State Park in the Santa Cruz Mountains. After spending the Saturday evening in the park and visiting nearby a Monterey on Sunday morning, they returned to the park at around 4 in the afternoon and decided they'd go for a hike and take in the views of the park. As they meandered along a well-worn trail about a mile from a popular observation deck, they passed by David Carpenter. Carpenter was headed towards the observation deck in the opposite direction of the couple, and so, you know, they passed by each other without saying a single word. And so, after sitting and taking in the view at the Cathedral Redwoods, Hansen and Hurdle decided to head back before they lost the light, and so they began to retrace their steps. However, not far from the point where they had crossed paths the first time, the couple once again came upon Carpenter, and he again was walking by them in the opposite direction. This time, however, they stopped and spoke for a couple of minutes. David Carpenter was like, hey, see you guys again, you know, we cross paths again. However, before either Stephen Hurdle or Ellen Hansen could even think of anything to say in reply to this, David pulled out a black revolver from his jacket and he pointed it at the couple. His next words were, do what I say. Hurdle instinctively raised his hand, but Carpenter ordered him to drop them. He didn't want anybody to know he was holding them up. He repeatedly told the couple to do what he said, and they wouldn't be hurt. As he tried to wave Hurdle to follow him down a hill, Ellen Hansen told him not to listen to the man. Ellen probably had a better idea that if we follow this guy, we're both gonna die. Stephen Hurdle pleaded with David Carpenter to just let them go. David Carpenter, in response to this, went up to Ellen Hansen and told her clearly, I want to rape you. 
After a brief back and forth exchange with the couple edging away from David Carpenter's black revolver, Stephen Hurdle slipped, lost his footing for a moment, and that sudden movement made David Carpenter open up. Stephen Hurdle later told investigators that he felt a sudden jolt of pain and said he felt as though he'd been hit in the neck with a sledgehammer. He felt a similar pain in his hand, and then he blacked out. He woke up upon hitting the ground, and the first thing he saw was Ellen Hansen lying next to him, her head in a pool of blood. He fought up to his knees, and he held Ellen's head in his hands, but she was dead. There's nothing he could do. She'd been hit twice in the head, and once in the shoulder, at close range. It was then he realized that David Carpenter was still there, just standing a couple of feet from him, his back to the couple. David Carpenter must have thought they were both already dead. So with David Carpenter's back to him, Stephen Hurdle managed to make it to his feet, and he ran. He ran towards the observation deck, which wasn't too far away, thinking yeah, there'd be people there, and luckily, he was right. He came crashing into a father and son. The people he met on the observation deck, they said, yeah, we also run in to David Carpenter. And they had seen David Carpenter whip out binoculars and look at the direction of Stephen Hurdle and Ellen Hansen. So while some of the passers-by decided to, you know, help Stephen Hurdle, they were putting pressure on his neck to stop the bleeding, one went in search of Ellen Hansen. And along the trail, he came into contact with David Carpenter. All David Carpenter had to say was, someone had been shot. And then he started walking towards the observation deck where Stephen Hurdle was getting medical assistance from passers-by. Stephen was obviously terrified seeing David Carpenter walk towards him. He pointed at him, he started screaming and shouting, saying this is the guy who tried to kill me and had killed my girlfriend. David Carpenter said nothing, simply walked away. By the time the police arrived, David Carpenter was already long gone. Stephen Hurdle would make a full recovery. The bullet was within two inches of his heart. Stephen Hurdle would be a major factor in arresting David Carpenter for the horrific crimes he was committing. His final victim would be 20-year-old Heather Skaggs. And Heather was unlike most of his other victims. She actually had more in common with his very first victim, uh, remember the, the secretary, Lois de Andrade. She was in fact a co-worker of Carpenter's. It was on the 2nd of May, 1981, that she was last seen alive. After telling her boyfriend she was going to see co-worker David Carpenter about a used car. She went off to meet with David Carpenter about this used car, and she was never seen again. She was later found, about three weeks later, on May 24th, 1981, in Big Basin State Park. Due to the decomposition, the identification took a couple of days, and they had to rely on dental records and it was determined she'd been sexually assaulted prior to her death. So you had all of these lists of murders, some with witnesses, some without witnesses, and some circumstantially connected to David Carpenter. And so that's when, you know, word was spreading of the trailside killer. During this time, John Edward Douglas, who would later go on to write the book Mindhunter, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with the TV show, he was there trying to profile this trailside killer. The profile for the trailside killer went a little something like this. Douglas, he looked at really everything about the murders, right? From the scene to the victims themselves. And he determined that because the crime scenes were secluded and only accessible on foot, 
The killer was likely a local in the area, very comfortable in the location. Douglas also thought that the killer would be asocial and able to charm his victims, hence why he would do these blitz-style attacks from behind, as it was the only way he could control the victims he would he would attack rather than lure. John Edward Douglas also correctly predicted the killer would be white, did blue-collar work, and almost certainly served time in prison for attempted rape or something similar. Ding, ding, ding. The biggest hit, though, for the profiler was... I don't know how he could even get this, but Douglas was able to correctly extrapolate that the trailside killer would likely have a speech impediment of some sort. The killer did not want to be seen. He relied on overpowering his victims, not using words and charm. David Carpenter, the trailside killer, was finally arrested on the 14th of May, 1981, walking his dog on, where else, Mount Tamalpais. At this point, he'd been on the police's radar for about two weeks, and he was arrested while just out for a hike. Who knows, probably looking for more victims. David Carpenter's first trial didn't take place until May 1984, due to numerous delays, including having the trial moved to Los Angeles due to the notoriety of David Carpenter by that point. And his first trial, because there'd be two, was for the murders of Alan Hansen and Heather Skaggs and the attempted murder of Stephen Hurdle. Carpenter and his lawyer were fully aware that he wasn't going to walk away from the courts and the trial was only ever going to end in a guilty verdict. After all, right, he was clearly seen in that attack, walking right by while his victim is bleeding out, receiving a medical attention, right? And then Heather Skaggs, she last said that she was going to buy a used car off him and never returned. So, when the obvious verdict came down, David Carpenter's lawyer freely admitted, yeah, he's guilty as shit, but what they were always saying was, don't kill him, don't kill him. It was really just about trying to don't give him a death penalty rather than trying to actually make him, you know, get free, because they knew there was absolutely no chance of getting that. But that's just what he got. He was sentenced to death for the murders of Ellen Hansen and Heather Skaggs. He was put on the gas chamber VIP list, but he would have to face trial in Marin County before he could be taken to death row. The second trial would be for the murders of Richard Stowers, Cynthia Moreland, Diane O'Connell, and Shauna May, the four bodies found together in Point Reyes National Seashore. And this time he was also on trial for the murder of Anne Alderson, who had gone missing on Mount Tamalpais. This trial wouldn't begin until January 1988. This time, Stephen Hurdle was, was a key witness for the prosecution, and he would take the stand, saying about the brutal attack that he and his deceased girlfriend, Ellen Hansen, had sustained. For some reason, by the way, David Carpenter also took the stand in his own defense and told the court he was not the killer. Unfortunately for him, though, um, in all these cases, there were a lot of witnesses and a lot of sketches. I mean, to describe to you what David Carpenter looks like, he's bald, he's got like the horseshoe hairdo, kind of dark brown horseshoe hairdo, big thick-rimmed glasses, and a beard. He looks like an, just kind of like an 80s IT nerd. Um, kind of unremarkable about the whole thing. Pretty ugly guy, though. You see pictures of him from all the way back. Not a very good looking guy, ever. 
Ultimately, in May 1988, after a $2.5 million trial, taking in over 500 pieces of evidence with a record of over 16,000 pages. Oh my god, this was a long one. Carpenter was found guilty for a second time. And once again, he was getting the death sentence. And that is the story of David Joseph Carpenter. I've gone through a lot of the murders that have been linked to him, but he hasn't been charged with all of them. And in fact, there's even more murders that he is suspected of having strong links with. He was never charged with the murders of Ida Kane, Barbara Schwartz, or Mary Frances Bennett. But I suppose by this point, they, they don't really need to. He's got two death sentences on him, so he's kind of good and gone. Like, he's, he's heavily suspected of having involvement in the murders of 17-year-old Anna Menyevar, who was killed when he was active. Um, he was a customer at the bank where she she worked. Another victim, 19-year-old Carol Lachlan. Um, she disappeared in September 1979 in Yosemite National Park. Her body found, like, seven months later. And Carpenter's salesman job at the time, it took him through Yosemite Park all the time, and Carol Lachlan's supervisor recalled talking to David Carpenter several times. So there's like a lot more murders that he's been heavily linked to, but officially charged with seven, oh, convicted of seven murders and one attempted murder. And that's only during his trailside killer days. We obviously have two attempted murders uh, before and a hell of a, you know, a lot of sexual assaults. But I think at this point, nobody ever really chased up those other cases because he's already pretty booked. But not quite fucked enough because he's still alive. He's still sitting on death row all these years later, over 30 years later, still sucking air, this guy. And he will likely die in San Quentin Prison's death row wing. Though whether it's age or lethal injection that finally gets him, at least he can't hurt anyone else. But he's one sick-ass piece of shit monster, I guess. It's kind of really all I have to say about that one. Once again, big surprise right there. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I really appreciate you uh, you being here and listening to this all podcast. I hope you found it as disturbing as I did. David Carpenter. Wow. Real piece of shit. Um, as always, please, uh, you know, we got the That Trapper podcast coming out with new episodes every week so please uh like and subscribe wherever you are and also check out the that chapter youtube channel where i got new videos coming out every week so give it a goo but for now let's leave it there as always please take care of each other and yourselves because i love you mike out <laughs>